Well, it's great to be back with you guys this morning. If you want, you can look under your aisles and you will see that, uh, or the seat ends on the aisle, you will see once again handouts for this week. So go ahead and grab a handout and pass it down. You'll need the handouts today. We're covering a lot of material. So basically everything from Exodus to Malachi today. So quite a bit there. Uh, Just to review where we are. So we're in week number two of a three-week series walking from cover to cover through the Bible. So all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we divided up the story of the Bible into nine words. You have all nine words on the top of your handout. You can see them up here. In these nine words, you have the whole story of the Bible, but these nine words are not all equal. One of them stands above the rest, and that's Jesus. He's really what the whole story is about. So everything in the Old Testament is pointing the way to Jesus. It's preparing us for his arrival, and everything else in the New Testament is pointing back to Jesus. It's telling us about what he has accomplished. This whole story is ultimately about him. Now, last week, we began the story with the first three words, the first three chapters of our story, and I like to call this the botched beginning of the biblical story. It began on an incredibly good note with God's creation of this wonderful world where everything is very good and his kindness and his love in creating us, humans made in the image of God, he granted us this wonderful world as a gift. We were made in his image to rule his world for his glory. And at the conclusion of that first chapter of creation, everything was what? It was all Very good, but then we blew it. We botched things up. In the second chapter, revolt. When humanity chose to revolt against God, to disobey God, and that revolt, that sin, brought death in all of its forms into human existence. Creation was broken and humanity was broken as sin entered our hearts. And yet, you might recall from last week, right? In the middle of cursing our sin, God promised to fix what, he, what we had broken. God promised that a male descendant of Eve would crush the head of Satan and deliver us from sin, but would in the process die. And that was the beginning of the promise of the gospel. And so the rest of the Old Testament becomes a waiting game. When will this son of Eve show up who will destroy our enemy? Well, that prophecy of a deliverer, it begins to take shape in the third chapter of promise. When God made an amazing promise to a man named Abraham. God promised that Abraham and his descendants would have land, very particular land from the Nile River to the Euphrates, and seed, meaning countless descendants, and blessing. They would be prosperous. They would have victory. And the greatest promise of all, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So now we knew it wasn't just any son of Eve. It would be a son of Abraham who would defeat our enemy and deliver us from sin at the cost of his own life. So Abraham obeyed God. And we looked at how Abraham grew last week. He didn't always obey. He blew it early in his story. But God grew him and developed him until at the end of his story, he's willing to sacrifice his son. Incredible act of obedience. God delivers his son. And then he seals those promises in an oath. 
Okay, and that becomes the Abrahamic covenant, an irrevocable oath from God for all of these wonderful things. And the rest of the story of the Bible is about how God is fulfilling that promise made to Abraham about 4,000 years ago. So that's where we looked last week at this amazing promise made to Abraham. So let's start filling in a timeline because now we're getting into the part of the Old Testament where you have specific dates. And so here's kind of the Old Testament, Abraham born around 2166 BC, we think, we're not positive on that. His birth begins a story in the Bible called the Age of the Patriarchs, which is about Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Israel and his 12 sons. And so it's about these forebears of the Jewish faith, of the nation of Israel. It's about the events of the book of Genesis from chapter 12 until the end. So about 290 years that you have the patriarchs. That period ends in famine. There's a famine in the land. And so God takes his people to Egypt around 1876 BC so that they can have food there. They can have good land. And at first, everything's wonderful in Egypt. They're prosperous. They have land of their own. But after a while, the Egyptians say, what are we doing? Letting them have this nice land and all this prosperity. Let's make them our slaves. And so the Israelites fall into slavery for most of that period in Egypt and begin to call out to God for deliverance. And that's where our story is going to pick up this week in Egypt as we enter what I like to call the messy middle of Scripture. This is the Empire Strikes Back part of our trilogy. It is dark. This whole period from Exodus through Malachi is dark with sin and evil and failure. But even in this mess, God is at work. He is doing amazing things to prepare the world for Jesus. So, the messy middle, let's jump right in with chapter 4. You can turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28 as we get to the next chapter of the story that we call law. Okay, the law. So, Deuteronomy 28 is where you can turn. When we think about the Abrahamic covenant, it's really quite nice. It's an amazing promise. All these wonderful things that God promises to the nation of Israel, but it had one huge deficiency, one big thing that the Abrahamic covenant lacked. It did not give Israel a way to access the blessings God had promised them in this life. So think about this for a moment. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were promised all the land. From the Nile River to the Euphrates, did they get it? No, none of it. They didn't get any of that land. Why? Because they sinned? Well, no, they hadn't done anything wrong. It was simply because God had not yet given them a way to cash in on those blessings in this life. A way to access all of those promises in this life. I like to think of it this way. The Abrahamic covenant, it's kind of like a million dollar trust fund put in the bank for a five-year-old. That five-year-old really likes some of that money, right? What can the five-year-old do to get that million dollars? Nothing. There's nothing that five-year-old, there's no way to access. There's no way to cash in on that trust fund that legally belongs to him or to her. So it was with the Abrahamic covenant. Amazing promises that were in the bank that belonged to Abraham and his descendants, but they had no way to access those promises. That's why a couple hundred years after Abraham, they're slaves in Egypt. What had they done wrong? What was their sin that earned slavery? Nothing. 
It was through no fault of their own. They were slaves because they did not yet have a way to access the rich blessings that God had promised them. Well, that deficiency, that problem is going to be solved by the next covenant that God gives. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's also called the Law. So just a little bit of history here. God is going to send Moses to Egypt around 1446 BC to deliver the Israelites from slavery. And Moses, if you know the story, he shows up and does some pretty crazy stuff. You have the whole ten plagues that scare Pharaoh, finally get him to release the Israelites. And Moses parts the Red Sea. God leads the people through dry land and then takes them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God shows up and he reveals to Moses what we call the law. It's this new covenant, the Mosaic covenant that takes up almost all of Exodus to Deuteronomy. Those four books are predominantly about the law. So we're just going to read a tiny little bit of the law. We don't have time to come close to reading all of it. I'm just going to read a little excerpt. Deuteronomy chapter 28, we'll start in verse 1. Now it shall be, if you, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. On and on. All these blessings. But then jump down to verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the country, and all these curses. Turn a couple pages over to chapter 30. Look at chapter 30, a little summary here. Chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land which you're, where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. What the law does is provide exactly what Israel needed that the Abrahamic covenant had laid out. It gives them tons of commands, tons of laws that if they will obey, they can cash in on those Abrahamic covenant blessings and enjoy them in this life. And so in other words, what is the law? It is simply the rules that Israel had to follow to enjoy Abrahamic covenant blessings in their lifetime. Yes, you can fill that in on your handout. The law is simply the rules that the nation of Israel had to follow to enjoy Abrahamic covenant blessings in their lifetime. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional and that was not a good thing. They did not have conditions that they could follow to enjoy it. There was nothing they could do to cash in on the promises. The Mosaic Covenant is opposite. It is conditional. It lays out for them exactly the conditions to follow so that they can enjoy all of God's rich promises in this life. Now, let's be sure that we're absolutely clear. This law, these rules that God has given, they are never about heaven or hell. Because salvation is always by faith alone. The law, the commands of God, the rules of God, that's not how you get into heaven because that's not how heaven works. 
Heaven is always a gift God gives by faith alone. That's true from Adam to whoever the last human being born will be. It's always by faith alone. The Mosaic law is not about heaven or hell. It was about this life. How could the Israelites in this life enjoy these rich promises God had made? Well, you got to obey. You got to follow the rules that God had set out. So the law regulated for Israel every area of life. And it's a ton of commands. It really does take up most of the pages around where you're looking in your Bible. That massive thing called the law, it breaks down into three groups of rules. The first is civil laws. So the Mosaic law was basically a constitution for Israel. It was their civil code. It regulated all parts of national life that included economic policy, criminal justice, immigration law, agricultural processes. Even building codes are found in the Mosaic law. It regulated everything. Here's just one example. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your town. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. Told you exactly when you had to pay your employees. So the civil laws of the Mosaic law, it made the Israelites into a nation with their own distinct legal code. Okay, so it's like their constitution. Second part of the law we call the ceremonial law. It determined all the the ceremonies and sacrifices that went into Judaism. Okay, so the law defined Judaism. Here, Jews, is how you should practice your religion. So here's one example for you. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other you shall offer at twilight. So the law regulated all the, the sacrifices, ceremonies, celebration days of the Jewish religion. Now it's important to clarify when they sacrificed these animals, that was not about heaven. That wasn't even about forgiveness because an animal dying can't take away a human sin. It was about obedience. You, they sacrificed the animals as an act of obedience to God that allowed them to enjoy his blessings in this life. And so God laid out all of these regulations that made Judaism its own distinct faith. that set apart the Jews from the rest of the nations. That's why there's some kind of funny laws in there. Um, the law specified that Jews could not wear fabric that was mixed of different kinds of things. The Jews could not eat bacon. The Jews could not marry outside of their racial group. It's not that God is a stickler, nor that God hates bacon. He wanted the Jews to be distinct, to be unique. So the rest of the world would say, what is going on with those people? We want to know more about them. God wanted the Jews set apart so the rest of the world would be drawn to find out about their God. Okay, so you have civil laws, you have ceremonial laws, and finally, and most importantly, you have moral laws that determine how Israelites were to, to act towards God and behave towards one another. These are summarized in some of the most important and famous verses of the law, the Ten Commandments. So here's the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. Ten Commandments. Those are the summary of the moral law. So you look at the Mosaic law and it regulated everything in life for the Jews. And that leads to one of the most important questions that people ask when they study the law. 
is it still in effect for us? The Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. Is this our law? How many of you have eaten bacon at some point in your life? I had it this morning. Is that a problem? No. Because we are not Israel. We are the church. The law is only for Israel before the cross. It was for them. We follow the commands of Jesus. The law is not for us. So we are not under the Mosaic law. It was only for the nation of Israel before Jesus died on the cross. God gave them this massive body of law, the Mosaic covenant, as a gift. And it's important to see it as a gift. Because a lot of times we who are living in the New Testament age, we think of the law as a bad thing. We have grace. We're happy about that. They had the law. We're glad we don't have that. No, no, no. The law was a gift from God because the law told Israel exactly what they needed to do any day of the week to be able to enjoy God's promised blessings in this lifetime. It was a great gift. If they obey, then they will be blessed. If they don't obey, then they'll be cursed. Not hell, but they'll miss out on the blessings in this life. Now, Unfortunately, if you've read your Old Testament, you probably already know which side of that equation they spent most of their time on, right? The disobey side, the curse side. Israel disobeyed God generation after generation because it turns out that knowledge of the law isn't enough. You have to want to obey it, and they didn't. And that is the fundamental problem with the law. The law was a good gift, but it had one major thing lacking. It did not give them the desire to obey. Ultimately, human beings do what they want to do. We all do. We do what we feel motivated to do. The Israelites knew what God wanted them to do, but they didn't want to do it. And God knew that would be a problem. Here's God himself speaking in Deuteronomy 5. Oh, that they, the Israelites, had such a heart. That's a metaphorical way of saying desire. Oh, that they had such a desire in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always and it may be well with them and with their sons forever. God is emotional in this verse. He is lamenting the fact that his people know what to do, but they don't want to do it. They don't have a heart to obey, and so they don't. That's the basic storyline of the Old Testament from this point forward. The Israelites choose not to obey. They keep disobeying the law. Even the best of them, even Moses, even David, they choose to disobey. And so none of them receive all the promises made to Abraham. And so that leads us back to the big question all the way at the beginning with Eve. Who is going to finally be? The son of Eve who will crush the head of Satan. Well, it's got to be someone who will perfectly obey the law. Because that's the only way to receive the blessings of God and become the source of God's blessings to the world. So now we're waiting to see. Will there ever be an Israelite who will step forward and perfectly obey the law? Well, not during Moses' generation. He had sinned. He was a murderer. His peers sinned as well. They got to the border of the promised land. God said, go in. They said, we're too scared. We're not going to go. And so God said, well, you're all going to die in the wilderness then. 
So they died in the wilderness. That's the next period of biblical history. So after the Exodus in 1446, we have the wilderness generation dies in the desert because they did not trust God to deliver them. After Moses' generation, Joshua steps forward and leads the nation in conquest of the promised land. 1406, he does better than the previous generation, but they still disobey God many times and they kick off an era of biblical history that is the darkest period of the Bible. It's called the Judges. The Judges is like a horror novel. It's horrible. It's a cycle where Israel gives into idolatry. They worship other gods. So God turns them over to conquering nations. They cry out for a moment that God would deliver them. He sends a judge to deliver them. As soon as deliverance has happened, they go back into idolatry over and over and just goes downhill. It gets worse and worse and worse. It's the darkest period of the Bible. It comes to an end in our next chapter. So next chapter of the story is what we call the the king. Okay, so chapter 5. The king. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This dark period of the judges wears Israel out. They don't want it anymore. And so they cry out to God, please give us a king so we can be like every other nation. We can be strong and independent and safe like every other nation. Now, when God is your king, that's kind of an insult to say, hey, you're not enough. We want a human king. But God says, okay, I'll give you the desire that you're asking. I will give you a king. I'll give you a king after your own heart. And that's Saul. Saul was a man after their own heart. What that means is Saul was the kind of king they desired. He was super tall. He was a really good warrior. They said, that's great. But Saul was prideful. And that pride led to his downfall. So God took the throne away from him and gave it to the next man, David, a man after God's own heart, meaning David desired what God desired. God's priorities were his priorities. And nowhere is that clearer than in 2 Samuel chapter 7, very significant chapter in the Old Testament. We're going to read it starting in verse 1. Now it came about when the king, that is David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I've gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the sons of Israel, which I commanded my shepherd, my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. 
When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God meets David in this moment. It's an amazing moment. It begins with David's worship of God. David says, God, I don't, I don't feel right anymore that I wake up every morning in a mansion in this beautiful palace and I look out my window and I see your place on earth where you dwell and it's a tent. Now, it was a fancy tent. They called it a tabernacle. The Israelites had built this fancy tabernacle that could be moved around as they wandered, but they hadn't built anything more for God. So he's in a tent and David says, that doesn't seem right. I want God to be praised. I want him to have a bigger house than me. I want his glory to be shown. And and God is honored by that. And so God shows up and says, well, David, I'm going to actually turn your request on its head. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, God had decided, David, I I do want a temple one day. It's not going to be you who builds it because David was a man of war. God had used him to conquer Israel's enemies. God wanted a man of peace to build a temple. So it would be Solomon later who would build it. But God says, David, what I want to do is actually reward you. And so God makes this amazing promise that will be sealed into a covenant. This is our third big covenant in the Old Testament. We had the Abrahamic covenant, then the Mosaic covenant, now the Davidic covenant. We're at about 1000 BC when we get to this covenant. God makes this amazing covenant with David. It's very similar to the Abrahamic covenant. It's unconditional. There's no do X, Y, and Z. It's just a promise. David, I promise to do these amazing things for you. I'm going to give you a house, meaning descendants. You will always have descendants. I'm going to give you the throne, meaning authority over my people. And I'm going to give you a kingdom to rule. And so basically the Davidic covenant is a promise that David's lineage would always rule Israel. They would always have the right to rule. And it's a promise for the nation that through a Davidic king, they would be planted in the land. They would have peace and prosperity. So if you're thinking about the Old Testament, it's kind of like a funnel. It starts out at the broad end of the funnel. God had said, Satan will be defeated. Sin will be overcome. You will be redeemed through a son of Eve. But that's any male human. Then he had narrowed it, a son of Abraham. That's any Jew. Now he narrowed it again through a son of David. A descendant of David will be this promised deliverer who will be a king and will bring the blessings of God into the world. So God has narrowed this amazing promise. This covenant is like the Abrahamic covenant in many ways, including the fact that it's irrevocable. No matter what David's descendants do in the future, this covenant will never be taken away. However, there is a problem with this covenant. Problem with all these first three covenants. The problem with this covenant is it comes after the law. The age of the king comes after the age of the law. And to experience God's blessings in this lifetime, you must obey the law. And so for David's descendants, they would not lose this covenant. It legally belonged to them forever. But if they were going to enjoy it, if they were going to access its blessings in this life, 
They had to go through the law. They had to obey. So when you think about what is God doing on earth in the Old Testament, yes, salvation is always by faith alone, but God's kingdom at work on this earth, his blessings flowing to his people through the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, what did you have to do to be blessed? You had to obey the law. Everything came through the law in this life. You had to obey. You had to obey the law, and sadly, they do poorly at that. David's descendants do not obey the law well. They keep failing to obey the law, and as a result, they experience cursing instead of blessing. Things go downhill. Actually, the, one of the reasons that I like reading 2 Samuel chapter 7 is you just read the highest point of the Old Testament. That's the best. You're on the mountaintop. Everything's downhill from here. Okay, so that was the moment in the sun. Everything goes downhill, including for David. David does poorly after receiving this covenant. It's shortly after this that he commits adultery and then murder. So David himself can't be this king who will bring God's blessings to the world because he has his own sin to deal with. Now, because the covenant was irrevocable, even after adultery and murder, he doesn't lose the covenant. And and that begs a question. Why would God take the throne away from Saul, but not David? If you've studied the biblical material, it is interesting. So David committed adultery and murder. Those are like big two ones. Saul, what did he do? All he did was offer a sacrifice to God that he wasn't allowed to give. I mean, that's a pretty minor thing. He violated his religion just a little tiny bit. So why does Saul lose a throne and David does not? Well, both men sin and then both men are found out. Their sin is discovered. Look at how each man responds to confrontation, to conviction when his sin is identified. Here's what Saul says. Samuel the prophet said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What do we call that? An excuse. Saul offers an excuse when his sin is confronted. Here's how David responds to confrontation and conviction. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you, before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's humility. That's repentance. He's on his knees before God. And what we learn from contrasting these two men is that in God's sight, it's not about the gravity of the sin. It's about the response to conviction. It's not about the seriousness of the sin. It's about how you respond when you are convicted about your sin. David responded in humility. Saul responded in pride. That's why Saul lost the throne and David did not. He responds in confession before God. So the throne passes to his son, to Solomon. 
Okay, and so we have Saul for about 40 years, David for about 40 years, and then Solomon for about 39 years. So really long reigns for each of them. Solomon's rule started great. He built the temple. He was just like his dad, but the latter half of his life was not so great. He gave into idolatry and adultery so badly and without repentance that God said, okay, discipline is coming. You're going to lose 10 of the 12 tribes. And God took it from his son, Rehoboam, under Solomon's son, the kingdom divides. Into the northern 10 tribes, now a new nation called Israel. The southern two tribes are a new nation called Judah. So this is a divided kingdom. You no longer have one Jewish nation. You have two Jewish nations. Unfortunately, all the kings of both nations go astray. There's a few good kings in Judah, none in Israel. Israel just goes all after idolatry. Judah stays faithful for a little while and then runs after idolatry too. As a result, God brings the ultimate form of discipline. He brings exile. So conquering nations come. Assyria comes and exiles the northern kingdom in 722 BC. Takes them off the land. They're gone. Southern kingdom's exiled by Babylon about 586 BC. And this again is an incredibly dark period in the Bible. The Israelites are off their land. There's no one living in Israel. No Israelites there. They've been exiled to the far nations of the earth because of their sin. Just as the law promised. If you disobey, you will be cursed in this life. And so they were. This is a very dark time. And yet in the midst of this very dark time, God shows up to give them hope. And that's the next chapter of our story, chapter 6. We get to the chapter of hope where God makes an amazing promise in the midst of these very, very dark days. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. This chapter of our biblical story is about God promising a new covenant. So the fourth big biblical covenant that God has promised his people This new covenant will give his people hope even in the midst of these dark days. Now, remember, what was the problem with the law? You remember? The law told you what to do, but what did it not give you? The desire to obey. Okay, so as a result, since you don't have a desire to obey, you're not going to obey because humans do what humans want to do. So Israel didn't obey, so they didn't receive the blessings. Instead, they received the curses, which brought this exile to them. But in the midst of that darkness, God promises a new and better covenant. So we're going to read Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. These verses we're going to read, they were written around 600 BC, just so you know. Let's pick it up in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, because the kingdoms had divided, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that's the Mosaic covenant, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This is a promise of a new and better covenant. So the Mosaic covenant, which they broke, God is going to set that aside and bring a better covenant called a new covenant that will take its place. And so there's no point in the Bible in which the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant are both operating. 
You only have one or the other. So the Mosaic covenant is going to be set aside and replaced by the new covenant, which is better in every way because the new covenant will finally bring true and lasting forgiveness. It will wash away all the sins that were committed under the old covenant and it will bring them a new heart, meaning new desire. They will want to obey God. It will transform them on the inside so that they want to do what God wants them to do so they can finally enjoy all of God's blessings in this life life. So Jeremiah 31 is one of the key passages. The other one is Ezekiel 36, which I'll just put on the screen for you. God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Amazing promise, wonderful promise that God gives here in Ezekiel. It's interesting how it begins. What's God's motivation? For giving a new covenant. He says, so I can vindicate my name. Because all of your sin, it has brought shame upon my name. I want to glorify my name to the nations. I want to show how loving and wonderful and righteous I am. That takes us all the way back to the very beginning. Remember the chapter on creation. What's the big goal of God? Why did God create anything instead of nothing? Well, God desires to glorify himself. By establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. But humanity had blown it. And so God's going to fix that. God's going to get glory for his name by fixing us through the new covenant. And so the new covenant provides these wonderful spiritual blessings that the human race had been waiting for. That would transform us from the inside. And there's three in particular. The new covenant will provide finally forgiveness for sins. The law couldn't do that. The the sacrifices of all those bulls and goats and rams could not bring forgiveness, but the new covenant can. Second, it will give a new heart. That's a a new desire. We'll actually want to obey God. Finally, his spirit will come to live inside of us. The Holy Spirit will dwell within us, which never happened in the Old Testament. He will take up residence within us to transform us. So the new covenant promises amazing spiritual things. It also promises a lot of great physical things. It says that Israel and Judah will be returned to the land and reunited. They will experience prosperity. They will have fertility and peace and safety. They'll have all of these wonderful things. And so when you add all that up, when you look at all that, here's the key to understand. The new covenant is how God is going to fulfill all of his covenant promises to Israel. It's the way that Israel will finally receive all that they had been promised. If you think about the physical promises of the new covenant, they're not new. The land, peace, prosperity, all of that was promised all the way back with Abraham. 
All of those physical promises were promised to them through the Abrahamic covenant, but they never got them. Why? Because they never obeyed the law. Because they didn't want to. They didn't have the right heart. The new covenant comes along and replaces the Mosaic covenant with these new and better spiritual promises that transform people on the inside, causing them to want to obey God. And as a result, enabling them finally to receive all the promised physical blessings God had declared they would have. The land, the peace, the prosperity, finally they could have it because they're right on the inside. The new covenant is what will finally take care of sin and get God's people back into fellowship with God, into God's presence so that we can walk with God. So you can think of it this way. The new covenant is what will finally get humanity back to the garden. Remember what it was like in the garden, back in the first chapter of this story, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. In his presence, they lived in perfect fellowship with him, but then sin entered the picture. And sin ruined everything. We could not walk with God once sin entered the picture, but the new covenant will fix that. The new covenant will get the human race back to the garden, back into this wonderful fellowship with God. It is the best covenant by far. But there is one thing different about the new covenant compared to all the other covenants. It did not begin yet. The Abrahamic covenant the Mosaic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant, as soon as God promised them, they began. In that moment, God says it and speaks it into existence, and those covenants are in effect. The new covenant's not like that. This is all prophecy. This is all God saying, this is what I will do in the future, but he hadn't done it yet. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, they don't have a new covenant. It's a promise. They're looking forward to it. They're still living under the old covenant. They're still living under the law. So to experience God's blessings in this life, they must obey the law. That is actually the the word, the speech that the Old Testament ends on. The very last page of your Old Testament is Malachi chapter 4. And here's what it says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinance which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. It's ironic, isn't it? The, the actual, literal, last word of the Old Testament is curse. Fits pretty well. That's what Israel experienced through most of the Old Testament. Why? Because they didn't obey. But God said that's going to change because there's a day coming. The day of the Lord. That's a famous phrase throughout the Old Testament. There is a day of judgment coming. The day of the Lord is when God's promised king, the son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David, who would perfectly obey the law and bring God's kingdom to earth. On the day of the Lord, he will arrive. And when he comes, he will bring deliverance for the righteous and destruction for the wicked. And clearly, you'd rather be part of the first group than the second, correct? You want the deliverance. So, according to Malachi 4, what do you have to do to get the deliverance? Remember the law of Moses. 
It's a phrase I underlined. You must obey the law if you're going to receive deliverance in this life rather than destruction when the Lord's king shows up. But he's not here yet. Not here yet. For the next 400 years, because Malachi ends around 400 BC, and then God is silent for 400 years. Not until John the Baptist shows up is God speaking again. During that 400 years of silence, we call it the intertestamental period, Israel does not wisen up. They continue to disobey, and as a result, they fall prey to a succession of evil empires. So first it's the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Medes. Then it'll finally be the Greeks and it'll be um, Egypt and it'll be Syria and it'll be the Romans. Over and over again, they're just pawns in the hands of all of these imperial powers. They are not experiencing the blessings of God because they are not obeying the law. They desperately need this promised son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David, who would perfectly obey the law and be their perfect king and bring their perfect new covenant. But we will not meet him until the next chapter. Okay? Not till the next chapter. We're still waiting. This is again, empire strikes back. We're not there yet. Now I'm going to be out next week. Todd Berkey will be up. When I come back in two weeks, we will finish the story. We'll get to the last three chapters. I'm going to close this in prayer. And then just like last week, I'm going to invite you, if you have questions, please come up. Let's talk. Let's clarify anything that's confusing for you. So you'll be ready for the last third of the story. If you'll join me in prayer, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and wise and powerful. You were still at work during the messy middle of scripture. You were still doing things to prepare the world for Jesus. We praise you for that. We thank you for this amazing plan that has been unfolding for thousands of years as you have been preparing the world for Jesus that we get to enjoy this, this new age that we live in. Lord, we thank you that you are always faithful, even when we are not, even when Israel failed so miserably, you never gave up on them. You continued to work, you continued to bless, you continued to save. We thank you for that. We thank you that you are so good, so faithful, and so wise. We praise you for your love, and we look forward to learning more about your son, Jesus, for whom we say, amen. Well, God bless you guys. I'll see you in two weeks. If you have questions, come on up.